one of us, we have stories that need to be told. And this weekend, as we wrap up our series, Unconditional Family, we're going to talk about the value, the power of sharing our stories. But, you know, uh, sharing stories seems to be a thing of the past. I remember growing up, uh, my dad served in the, uh, in the Air Force, and at the end of World War II, he was in Germany. And uh, I remember as a kid, he, he had this shoebox, and he would pull this shoebox out, and it had all these black and white photos of when he was in Germany with his squadron doing different things. He had newspaper clippings that went all the way back to the 1940s. He's kept all these years, and he would pull them out, and he would share and different awards and medals that he won. And I would just hang on every word as he shared that kind of story. And I can remember sitting on the front porch at my grandparents' house, and that's back in the days when there were real front porches with real rocking chairs. And I would sit there, and I'd listen to my grandparents as they would talk about their childhood and their youth, and I was just mesmerized as I listened to their stories. But the reality is, this idea of sharing stories as a family seems like it's a lost art. And I think the reason is because of the advancements in technology, uh, especially as it relates to social media. Uh, we don't do this much anymore. We do this a lot now. And we don't have very much face-to-face -face, uh, verbal communication. In fact, that's kind of going the way of the dinosaur, right? In fact, recently CNN did a special report on eighth graders and social media, and I was looking at it online. I grabbed a couple of this, uh, quotes. I would rather not eat for a week than get my phone taken away. It's really bad. Now, if that was my kid, I would let her go ahead and see what it's like not to eat for a week. And then she could make that choice, right? But uh, that kind of gives you an idea how eighth graders feel about their phone. Let me show you another one. Look at this one. I don't like dealing with things face-to-face -face because it's really easy to hide behind your phone and on face-to-face -face like, like you have to deal with the other person. So they were saying we would rather talk to people through the media, through our phone, than actually talk face-to-face. -face. And in this survey, this report, it said that most eighth graders check their phone over 100 times a day to see what people are saying to them and to see what people are saying about them. And that's what I mean. We live in this time where we're talking more like this than we are like this. And it's really, really dangerous. But one of the real downsides uh, of less face-to-face -face verbal communication is that we're tending to tell fewer stories. And that's a shame because I'm telling you, stories are powerful things. I mean, think about it. 50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial facing 250,000 people who had crowded in on the mall that day. And I'm telling you, when he stood there, he didn't, he didn't read from a teleprompter, right? He reached deep down into his heart, into his soul, and he told us a story. And the story was of his dream. He says, I have a dream that one day in America, we can be a nation where there is racial equality, where there is racial healing, where there is racial reconciliation. And, and we've come away, and we got a long way to go, but it was, it was that story that captured the heart of a nation and began to move us in the right direction. See, that's the power of a story. In 1980, if you were alive, America was a mess. We were in a recession. There was inflation. Laura and I bought our first house in the early 1980s. We paid 18% as a mortgage rate. Most of you are paying 3 to 4% now. On top of that, we had hundreds of American citizens who were being held hostage in Iran. And Ronald Reagan was elected as president of the United States. And he looked through a camera lens into the eyes of the American people, and he didn't just give us a speech. I'll never forget, he told us a story. He reminded us of how great America is, and he reminded us that we would be great again, and he gave us hope. I'm telling you, a story is a powerful thing. And one of the things I know about everybody listening to me right now is that inside of you, there is this desire to share the story of your life, whether it's a, a, a victory or a struggle, whether it's a heartache or a celebration, it is in your life. And the reason that it's there is because that's how God created us. 
And as we talk about this family value of sharing our stories, I want you to understand that as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, one story that we, we ought to want to share every opportunity we get is the story of how God has changed our lives. And let me tell you why it's so important. You know, someone can deny that God spoke the world into existence. Someone can deny that God created mankind in his image. Someone can deny that while Jesus was on this earth that he was at the same time fully God and fully man. Someone can deny that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and three days later rose from the dead. Someone can deny that one day Jesus is going to return to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. But I'm telling you, people have a hard time denying the story of a changed life. I mean, when your life changed and you tell your story, they're like, well, something happened. I'm not sure what happened, but something definitely happened, and that's why your story is so important. And when we talk to other people, when we share our story, what we're really doing is, is, is we're being involved in evangelism, and that's, that's not a word that we use around here very often. And the reason is the, the word just itself scares the bejeebies out of us. I mean, we think of evangelism. That's some guy in a three-piece suit and a big old family Bible knocking at your door, you know, try, let, let me share Jesus with you, right? That's evangelism. Or who wants to have a conversation with a friend that begins, hey, if you were to die tonight, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to go there, right? Or what, what if you share your story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life, and they ask you a, a theological question that you can't answer? So that's scary. That's stressful, right? But evangelism is really nothing more than the process by which we come alongside of a friend, and we encourage that person to follow Jesus. And it really is a process. Recently, I've been reading back through 1 and 2 Corinthians, and I'm reminded, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He said, I planted the seed. In other words, when I was with you, I shared with you the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But then a guy named Apollos, who was another great teacher, came along, and he watered it. He cultivated it. He fertilized the seed that I had planted. But at the end of the day, it's God that makes it grow. It's God that gives the increase. So it's this process. And in the old days when we talked about sharing our stories, we used to refer to this as witnessing, right? And, and, and we don't use that term anymore, but it's actually a good term because this word witness literally means to give testimony of facts or events. In other words, when we're telling the story, we're just sharing facts and events of how Jesus has changed our lives. And I know what some of you are thinking, well, that, I know some people are really good at that, sharing their story, sharing the gospel, but that's just not my thing. But I want you to understand, for all of us who are Christians, it's something we're commanded to do. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it's now known as the Great Commission. Jesus coming down to the very end before he ascends back to heaven, he says, I want you to go make disciples. That's the charge that he gave us. And you cannot make a disciple of Jesus Christ until someone has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to ask you this week by a show of hands, in fact, let me ask you, just, just raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand if you spent some time on social media this week. Just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to put mine down because I don't because I think it's for perverse. But anyway, everybody else, everybody else, lift your hand. Now you don't want to do it right. So you spent lots of times, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many people shared the story this week with someone of how God had changed their life, it would be pretty embarrassing. Do you know why? Social media is safe. I mean, we can, as Christians, we can get on social media and we can post things and we can argue about gun control and immigration and climate change. We can get all passionate and say big, strong stuff, right? Or we can get on Facebook and Instagram and we can say, hey, it was a beautiful day. I rode around with my top down, you know, took the dog for a walk, went to the Woolly Worm Festival, went to the fair. We don't care. We really don't care. 
I took my grandkids to the fair Friday night. I was so embarrassed. Laura, Laura's on Facebook. Pray for her. She posted pictures on Facebook. I cannot tell you how many people came up to me last night at the Saturday evening services. Wow, we saw on Facebook you took your kids to the grandkids to the fair. This was my response. Why do you care? Why, I, mean, I don't care that you go to the fair. Why do you care that I, why do we spend so much time doing that? Yet we're sitting on a story. See, we're sitting on the answer to life, not only now, but life after we die. But we'd rather spend time on social media talking about all kinds of things and posting all kinds of pictures instead of sharing something that could actually make a difference in our life. And if I asked you why you don't share it, you'd say, Mike, it's stressful, it's scary, but I think more often than not, it's because we don't understand what the process involves. You see, salvation is a decision that happens at a point in time when a person decides to follow Jesus Christ. But evangelism is a process. And sometimes it can take days, sometimes it can take weeks, sometimes it can take months, sometimes it can take even years. But this weekend, I want, you to sh I want to show you how just telling your story of how God has changed your life fits into this process of evangelism. And to do that, I want to look at the story from the life of the Apostle Paul as he tells his story. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 25. We're going to be in chapter 23, 25, 26. Just, just go to chapter 25 and wait for me. I'll be there in a second. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So the fifth book in the New Testament, you will find yourself there. Understand that when the Apostle Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, he became the new voice of Christianity. And the very same religious leaders that were responsible for finally getting Jesus on the cross and killing him, now they set their sights on Paul. They want to squash Christianity. They want to nip it in the bud. They want to get rid of it once and for all. So it says in Acts chapter 23, verse 12, some Jews, and these are the religious leaders if you read the chapter, they formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. And you can read it for yourself, but to make a long story short, they kind of manipulate uh, the legal system. They have Paul arrested. He's taken into custody. And he's going to stand trial for the charge of being a troublemaker. So when you get to chapter 24, he has his first trial. He goes before a guy named Felix. Felix asks him some questions. He can't find anything that Paul is guilty of, but that doesn't stop him from keeping Paul in prison for two years, hoping to extort some money out of him. So even though Paul has done nothing, he just keeps him in prison. Well, then later on, he goes before a guy named Festus. And I don't know if Felix and Festus were twins, but I don't know, put those names together, probably, right? So he goes before Festus. Festus can't find anything that Paul's done wrong either. And now Paul, who's been sitting in jail for over two years, he's kind of had it with this whole charade. So he decides, I'm going to go straight to the top. I want to talk to the emperor. I want to talk to Nero. And being a Roman citizen, it was the law on that day. He had every right to make that request. But Festus knew that you didn't send somebody to Nero without charging them with something. The problem is he can't find anything that Paul has done wrong. So one day, Paul, uh, uh, Festus, he's hanging out with King Agrippa. King Agrippa, he's a couple of rungs up on the org chart. And he's sharing with him his dilemma. He says, I got this guy in jail, Paul. The Jews want him dead. I can't find anything that he's guilty of. And it kind of sparks King Agrippa's interest. And he says, man, I'd love to meet this guy. So you get to chapter 25, verse 22. He says, I would like to hear this man myself. 
And so the very next day, the great apostle Paul, right, goes in to meet with King Agrippa. And Agrippa begins by basically asking him, Paul, what do you have to say for yourself? Now get, understand, you're getting ready to hear from the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Other than Jesus Christ, the most brilliant theologian that has ever lived. And if Paul wanted to, he could back up the big old theological dump truck and dump it all over King Agrippa. But instead of doing that, instead of having a theological debate, instead he takes the opportunity to share his story about how Jesus Christ has changed his life. He begins in chapter 26, verse 2. He says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Just give me a chance. That's all he's asking for. Verse 6. He says, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. The Pharisees were part of that religious group that made sure Jesus got up, ended up on a cross. And then he goes on to say, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors. What was it that God had promised the ancestors, the Messiah? So he says, now it's because of this Messiah that's come. That's the reason that I'm on trial today. Verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And the book of Acts bears that out. If you go back to chapter 7, we have our first Christian martyr. His name is Stephen, and he's stoned to death by the religious leaders of the day. But when you get to chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And Saul, and that's who later became Paul, right? Saul approved of them killing him. In other words, Saul stood by while they stoned Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them in prison. So as Paul stands before King Agrippa, he says, Agrippa, I get it. I understand where you're coming from. I hated him too. By the way, just so you know, Agrippa comes from a long line of Christ Christian haters. His grandfather was the one who murdered all the babies to and under around the time of Jesus' birth. His great uncle had John the Baptist beheaded. His dad killed James. Eventually, he imprisoned Peter. So Paul, understand, is looking into the face of a man who understands what hating Christians and Christianity is all about. And he says to Agrippa, listen, Agrippa, I used to be just like you. We're cut from the same cloth. We are two peas in a pod. In fact, verse 11, many times I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul says, Agrippa, we have more in common than you think. No one has been more aggressive against the cause of Christianity than I have. Paul says, I hated them with a passion. And I think that by this time you would probably agree with me that Paul has Agrippa's full undivided attention. And sensing that, Paul takes this opportunity to share the story of how Jesus changed his life. Verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. 
about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that's not a misprint. That's not goats. That actually is goads. And you say, well, what is a goad? That's actually a reference to an old Greek proverb about useless resistance. We would say in our English, like, why fight the inevitable? Right? So Jesus is saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you fighting against what's inevitable? Paul says, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sin. Paul says, Agrippa, it blew my mind. There I was, a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that he was a member of the Supreme Court of the Jews. And there I am on my knees, face to face with Jesus. Agrippa, I'm telling you, he changed my life. And I hope you'll read this for yourself. Chapter 26, it goes on to say in the next few verses, Paul basically says, after that encounter, I did exactly what he told me to do. Well, that would, I would probably do the same thing too. But, I mean, if a guy blinded me in the middle of the day, right? He says, I did exactly what Jesus, I began to go and share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And that's why the same Jewish leaders that condemn Jesus, that's why they want to condemn me also. And he tells his story. And then he wraps it up by asking Agrippa a question in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, finally Agrippa responds, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, do you think by just telling me this story that I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Paul replied, short time or long. Remember, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months, sometimes it takes days. Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me, everyone else who's standing in this courtroom today, may become what I am. I'm praying that you will get to that place where you will submit your life to Christ. I pray that you will become what I am, except for these chains. Paul says, these chains, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So Paul shares the story of how Jesus changed his life. But at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, Agrippa basically responds, thanks, but no thanks. But you see, that's not Paul's problem. He's not stressed out. He can't, he can't make someone a Christian. All he can do is share his story. He understands, hey, I'm just part of the process. I'm just a link in the chain. I'm just doing what I was told to do, right? Now, here's the question. Let's say that you're sitting in Starbucks and you're sharing your story. You finally work up the courage of how Jesus changed your life. This is where the tension comes. What if your friend wants to know more? Or what if they ask you a theological question that you can't answer? How do you handle a situation like that? What if they say, oh, okay, I, I love your story. How do I become a Christian? And you panic. What do you do? Accidentally spill your coffee on you so you have to leave, run out the door, whatever it is. How do you deal with a situation like that? Well, I want to wrap up our time together this weekend by addressing two questions that we all need to be prepared to answer as it relates to just simply sharing our story. And I think that this will take away a lot of the stress and a lot of the fear. And rarely do I ask you to take notes because rarely do I feel like I have anything to say that is noteworthy. 
But I would encourage you this weekend, whether it's on your phone or if you have a fly leaf in your Bible, grab a pen, a couple of things that we're going to talk about that will save you a lot of this stress. What is it that we need to know? Here's the first question. What is it that our unbelieving friends need to know after we share our story? And then what is it that our unbelieving friends need to do? And this is very, very important because most of our friends who aren't Christians, they already think they know what they need to know, and they already think they know what they need to do. I mean, a lot of our unbelieving friends, they think that, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, that just means i got to stop sinning and I've got to start being good. Or some think that they need to pray some kind of magical prayer. Or they think they need to make a commitment or give something or maybe be baptized, right? There's a lot of confusion out there. And one of the reasons there's so much confusion is because the church has made it very, very confusing. We may be the biggest problem. I mean, our unbelieving friends, they go to one church and they hear that they need to commit to something. They go to another church and they hear that they need to give something. They go to another church and they hear that they need to receive something or exchange something. I mean, no wonder they're so confused. We're not even consistent with the message that we're sending to them. So we need to be consistent. As a church family, we need to make sure that we're on the same page, that we're giving good, sound, biblical theology about what it actually means to become a Christian and how you become a Christian. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is one of the simplest passages in all the Bible about what is it that our unbelieving friends need to know. Let's answer that question first. What is it that they need to know? Understand 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and this is what he says in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. By the way, what does this word gospel mean? Well, in the first century, when, when, when Greek was a, a spoken language, it simply meant good news. Now, we don't use it that way anymore. Nobody came in this morning saying, I've got the gospel. I won the lottery. Or, I get, hey, listen to the gospel. You know, we're pregnant. Nobody uses that that way anymore. This word gospel, unfortunately, has become a Christian word. But when the Bible was written, the word gospel simply meant good news. It wasn't a term that was used only by Christians. So Paul says in verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel. I just want to remind you of the good news. And when you get to verse 3, he explains what the gospel or the good news is. Verse 3, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, Paul says, I taught you a lot of stuff, but this is the most important thing I taught you. And I would say this, as much stuff as we've talked about at Hope and as many series as we've been through, I would say this is the most important thing that you will ever hear coming out of my mouth. This is what he said. Christ died for our sins. Just say that with me. Christ died for our sins. Okay, you sound like Presbyterians. Say it like you mean it. Ready? Christ died for our sins, right? He says according to the scriptures. So if somebody walks up to you tomorrow or you're sitting with your friend across from the table at Starbucks and they say, well, Mike, what is the gospel? You can say, well, Christ died for our sins. And then Paul gives us some proof in verse 4. He says he was buried. In other words, he didn't just pass out and swoon and resuscitate. He was buried. In other words, he was dead. Now, that's very, very important because in the first century, and for centuries since the resurrection, a lot of people have used this swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die. He swooned or he passed out on the cross. His family and loved ones took him down, wrapped him up like a mummy, put him in a tomb, rolled a two-ton stone in front of it. Somehow, a few hours later, Jesus felt refreshed and revived from the coolness of the tomb. And somehow he got out like Houdini and he wrapped himself and moved the two-ton stone. It was like, ta-da, I'm back type thing, you know. And that he didn't actually die. He just 
resuscitated himself. Paul says, no, no, no. He was dead, and the proof of that is his friends and his family buried him. I mean, nobody, if there was no one who wanted to bury Jesus, it was his friends and family, right? And if they could have seen either the flicker of an eyelash, if they could have seen the twitch of a muscle, any lift in his chest whatsoever that he might be breathing, trust me, they would have worked to resuscitate him. They wouldn't have buried him. Paul said, he died for our sins, and the proof was he was buried. And then he gives us a second point in verse 4. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. So the first point is Christ died for our sins. Here's the second. Jesus was raised on the third day. Let's say that together. Jesus was raised on the third day. And how do we know that he was raised? He says in verse 5, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, Paul said, this wasn't an isolated occasion where some guy came home from work and said, honey, I stopped at the market to get some milk on the way home. I think I saw Jesus. And she's like, you're an idiot. Every time you see a guy with sandals and a beard, you think it's Jesus. It wasn't Jesus. Paul says, no, that's not what happened. He said there were 500 people that saw him at the same time. It wasn't an illusion. In fact, he goes on to say, some of them are still alive. You can go to Jerusalem right now, and there are people walking around the streets of Jerusalem that saw Jesus after the resurrection. You can talk to them. Verse 7, he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me, and we just talked about that on the road to Damascus. So understand, the message that we need to make clear to our unbelieving friends is very, very simple. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. And the, point that the res- reason that the resurrection is so important is not important, I mean, it's important that he died for our sins, but see, the resurrection, that validated that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the Son of God, who was capable and willing to take away the sins of the world. So if somebody walks up to you tomorrow and says, what's the gospel? You just tell them, hey, Jesus died for our sins and was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. And you say, well, Mike, everybody knows that. Well, that may be true. But remember, evangelism is a process. And many of you listening right now, you can attest to that. Some of you attended church for years. Maybe you went to a Christian school or a Catholic school. You heard the gospel all your life. Jesus died on the cross and was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. You heard that all your life. It just didn't change anything. But one day you heard it, and the lights came on, and it clicked. And you thought, now I get it. I was working out at the gym one day, and I had just finished uh, doing a set. And there was a guy there. He'd kind of grown up in the Methodist church his whole life, and, and I would kind of harass him. That's my spiritual gift of harassment. And he would harass me back. Great relationship. And just as soon as I finished my set and put the weights down, he just walked up to me and said, got a question for you, Mike. How can you know that you go to heaven when you die? I'm like, wow. I mean, that's like throwing a bone to a dog, you know, to ask a pastor that, right? And I basically just shared, I shared with him what I just shared with you. And we had a little bit of conversation, but that was it. He knew it already. He'd been in church all of his life. Well, then he came for a Christmas production, and then he came to Easter, and, and then he started attending from time to time. And then a couple of weeks ago when I, when I taught, and at the end I said, man, if you would like to receive Jesus Christ this weekend, this free gift of salvation, come down here to the front and someone will pray for you. Guess what? It clicked for him. And he made his way down to the front, and he invited Jesus Christ into his life. See, it wasn't that he had never heard that Jesus died on the cross and was raised the third day. He'd heard it all his life. It just never clicked. That's why it's our job to be ready all the time, 24-7, with a clear gospel message. It's because when that critical moment comes, and we don't know when that critical moment's going to be, but when it comes, 
we can say, here's what you need to know. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Second, what does an unbeliever need to do with that information? It's one thing to know it, but what do they do with it? Well, here's the answer. They need to trust Jesus as their Savior. Say that with me. They need to trust Jesus as their Savior. Now, what does it mean to trust? Well, probably the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice what it says. It says, whoever believes in him. It doesn't say whoever dedicates themselves to something, commits to something, promises something, pledges something. It doesn't say whoever gives a bunch of money. It doesn't say whoever is baptized. And I say that because I still hear every once in a while that people are teaching around here, well, you've got to be baptized. You're not saved until you're baptized. It doesn't say that. It says whoever believes in him. By the way, a good argument for that, remember the thief on the cross? What did he say? Jesus, will you remember me today when you get to heaven? I don't read anywhere in that story where Jesus got him down off the cross and baptized and then put him back up there and said, okay, I'll see you later. Yeah. What did Jesus say? Sure, I'll see you in just a few minutes. Okay? Whoever believes in him. By the way, these, the two Greek words, believe and in, they had never shown up together like that in Greek literature until the Greek New Testament was written. And it's because, see, in the, in the Greek language, there is no word for trust. There's only the word believe. But Jesus came along and said, the point isn't to believe that something is true. It's not to believe that something is historically accurate. The point is to believe in, which we would define in English as trust. So the way a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ is by understanding the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. They understand the gospel and they place their trust in Jesus. This is what John said in John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. How? In his name. So you don't become a Christian by committing to something or giving something or exchanging something. The issue is trust. It's placing your trust in Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for our sins. That's what it means to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants our unbelieving friends to do. He wants them to put all of their trust in him. He wants them to get to the point where they're willing to say, God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I know that the only thing that's going to bring reconciliation is what Jesus did for, on the cross for me. I know that it's the only thing that's going to allow me to live a life that's pleasing to you. And I know that when I die... The only thing that's going to get me into heaven is Jesus. So I'm not trusting in anything else. I am trusting 100% completely that his death on the cross was sufficient payment for my sin. Pretty simple. Do you know why it's so simple? It's because if you're here this weekend and you're a Christian, that's your story. And so you're just, you know, you're sharing your story. It's, it's, it's just the most natural thing in the world. But when you share your story, not only is it the most natural thing in the world, it's the most powerful thing in the world. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. We now have it as the book of Romans. This is what he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Why? Because it is the power. And you know what Paul, the word, Greek word Paul used there? Dunamos. Guess what word we get from it? Dynamite. Yeah, just like J.J. used to tell us, right? Dynamite. And it's not to blow people up. 
He's just saying it's that kind of power that can change your life. Now, starting next week and for the next four weeks, in all of our small groups, we're going to give you the chance to share your story. Watch this short video. Each life tells a story. A story of not a care in this world. A story of an unforgettable adventure. A story of true love. Our stories have obstacles and hardships that shape us. Our stories have songs that help heal. Moments we hope to never forget. Stories of new life. Stories of new beginnings. Travels around the world or just a few hours up the road. Join us as we share our stories with those in our neighborhoods, our families, and beyond. Stories of beginnings, obstacles, hope, and future. To create community and to find commonality. This is life. Life as we know it. we're going to encourage every person at Hope we call this an all play and we do this every once in a while because there's something powerful about us all doing something at the same time we're asking every small group to do this and I know I've had people say well we're already in a different study trust me the shack or whatever you're studying will wait four weeks okay we're asking for four weeks to interrupt your study and to do this and if you're not in a small group it's a great way to try out a small group for four weeks you don't have to have a Bible or know anything about theology because this is just an opportunity for you to begin to share your story and as you're doing it in your small group parallel on the weekends I'm gonna be going through a series on the life of David and we're gonna begin by next week at looking at a story from his beginning and and the first week you don't write the story of your childhood you write a story from your childhood a memory something that somehow impacted your life the next week you write a story about an obstacle that you faced in life and we're gonna look at an obstacle that David faced in life the next week you talk about something that brought you hope in your life and we're gonna look at a, ser a, a, a section in David's life where he, he discovered hope in God and then the last week you get to write a story about your future what does your future look like and we're gonna look at David's future and how even though with all of his mistakes God kept his promise and was faithful and provided him with a future. I think it's going to be incredible. And I think it's an incredible way for us to really get to love and understand and appreciate one another. But I think it's even more importantly, it's going to allow us to see how we all fit together in God's story of redemption. Now, in just a few minutes, Donnie's going to come out and give you some details how to get the book and how to get into a group if you're not in the group. But before we do that, let's just, let's just bow our heads for a second. And let me just say something before I pray. I realize that many of you sitting here right now listening to me, you think you're a Christian. But you're not. 
and you're not because you haven't accepted the gospel. Or you're trying to be good and you're trying not to sin and maybe you've even been baptized, but you've never gotten to that place where you realize the only thing that I'm relying on, if I were to die today and stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer he's going to accept is this. It's because I trusted in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me to pay for my sins. And I believe that he rose the third day to validate and verify he was truly indeed the Son of God who can take away the sins of the world. You can say, I was in church every weekend, I memorized the Bible, I gave a million dollars, God's going to say, yeah, that's not the answer I'm looking for. And if you haven't come to that point, I, I don't want you to go another day without having a relationship with God. So I, I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer. Let's just bow our heads. And I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer where you can make that declaration. I, I want you to walk out of here this weekend knowing 100% that I've been reconciled back to God and my sins have been forgiven. I'm going to lead you in a prayer and if you would just pray it quietly in your heart and if, if it comes from a pure motive, and if you're sincere in what you say, I'm telling you, God will hear it and he will restore that relationship with you. He will forgive you of your sins. You will walk out of here with eternal life. But more importantly, you'll have the power to be the person he's called you to be right now. Just pray after me. Dear God, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that he was buried and I believe that he rose after three days. I believe that he is the savior of the world and I receive him right now as my savior. Please accept me into your family right now, not based on my efforts, not even based on this prayer, but based on my faith and trust in what you did on my behalf. Thank you for forgiving me and thank you for accepting me. Father, I pray for those who just prayed that prayer because I know you heard it. If it comes from a pure and sincere heart and may they feel that sense once and for all, they now know without a doubt that they have been reconciled back to you. And yeah, you have a life that you want them to live and yeah, you want them to get baptized as an outward sign of the decision that they made. But right now, right now, the deal has been sealed for them. Father, we thank you that you made it simple so that it was available to everyone. And I pray that no one would leave here this weekend wondering, not really knowing. I pray that you would just give them that assurance that it's been taken care of. In your name we pray.